Conversations is the podcast of all things medicine, science, and art, and is a product of MediaMedicine.com. MediaMedicine.com is graciously supported and uh, backed by the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Scripps School of Communications and Ohio University writ large. Some of the content discussed on rotations may be disturbing or objectionable to some listeners. You've been warned. Stuff done and make it work. It's just one thing after another. Just digging through the trash here, trying to find a previous thing. Notes I did for the third time I've tried COVID five. Uh, my goodness, it just takes forever trying to get organized. There's too much multitasking going on, but I guess uh, we'll get going here in just a second. Okay, that was Dr. James Gaskell. If you could hear him in the background, he was on uh, YouTube announcing the death of the first uh, patient from COVID-19 in Athens County, Ohio. Uh, And I am uh, Todd Fredericks Dio, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in Athens, Ohio. And this is uh, Rotations COVID-5. We'll call it COVID-5++ because I've literally recorded this same episode now two other times and lost the files. Um, I get so much data coming in every day from military sources, working special projects uh, to try to improve domestic uh, production of um, PPE uh, in our our small effort uh, in relationship to the larger national effort. Um, And then, of course, uh, the competing university things that come in that have to be dealt with so we can keep the best educational experience for medical students in the planet going. And um, it's sobering. Uh, I knew it was coming. I'm a... um I'm a very uh, realistic guy. I uh, have, uh, you guys will know my background. If you've ever listened to rotations, you know that I'm no stranger to death and I'm no stranger to um, what a pandemic disease can do. But again, uh, it becomes progressively more for reals, as they would like to say, uh, when it comes to um, when it comes to things like a death in our own county uh, from, from this disease. And uh, there's no details. Dr. Gaskell didn't share them specifically. I won't share them here. I'll let them come out as they will in the appropriate channels. But... Um, yeah, this is a this is a sad day for Athens County across the board, as it is for the thousands of counties across the United States of America that have uh, lost people that they care about, um, people famous and people not so famous, and but but important to others in their own way. Um, okay, so let's launch into this. Um, we know where this is going to go. Uh, we know that this is a tough slog. Uh, the term is appropriate, and um, it's going to continue to be a tough slog. I want to bring you up to date uh, on a couple of things. 
Uh, right off the bat, a little housekeeping. Our, our uh, producer at large, Nisarg Bakshi, has finally come out of the dark woodwork of his existence. And he left me an email and he said, hey, I'm out here. I'm alive. And I said, that's really good because I've been wondering where you're at. And as soon, Nisarg, if you're listening, as soon as my QuickTap comes in, BNH just sent me a back order notification, which I don't understand why QuickTaps are a prize commodity, uh, probably because they're built in China and everything's being diverted uh, for logistics for PPE. Uh, as soon as I get a quick tap, I'll be able to do an update with Nassar, which I've been looking for, although it'll be on circumstances I wasn't planning. Let me give you uh, briefly an update on PPE distribution. Uh, to put this in perspective, I spent the better part of the morning doing uh, surge planning for um, advising my senior military leadership about what we would need in terms of ven- uh, BiPAP, CPAP machines, as well as high-flow oxygen uh High flow nasal, high flow oxygen nasal cannula systems, and all the supporting equipment that goes along with the, that that uh, material. Had a great uh, talk with a, a brand new uh, major in the United States Air Force as a pulmonologist at CAMC, uh, and um, rattled that around for a while and looked at um, what would our strategy be that would be reasonable for surge. I can tell you right now across the country. Those efforts are being conducted not just for meeting the current need, but also for looking at this disease process as it goes on for months and perhaps even years. And when I say years, we're talking uh, 18 months to 24 months time frame. That's just realistic with reemergence of disease. Um, clearly, the Chinese are are a problem in terms of their data reporting. There is all sorts of conflicting information coming out of China. I watch it regularly. Uh, understanding what the People's Republic of China government is. It is a communist autocracy that um, has lots of reasons for giving out information or withholding information. Uh, But um, since there are no journalists or Western journalists have been ejected, uh, we don't know really from the person on the street. And it seems to be that people on the street that have experience with it are are reassigned, quote unquote, whatever that means. Again, it's very hard for any of us who've been watching these numbers closely to believe that what the Chinese report is accurate. Um, I will tell you this. North, South Korea has one-sixth the population, about 50 million people in it, uh, one-sixth the population of the U.S. roughly. They've done 300,000 tests. And I'm going to get into that uh, as part of where we go, and then I'll go back into PPE logistics. Uh, they've done 300,000 tests. The United States is approaching 900,000 tests. And let's review very quickly uh, the reasons why. South Korea experienced SARS uh, back in 2002-2003. Because they'd experienced SARS, they were very, very sensitive to pandemic disease. And because they were very sensitive to pandemic disease, their view... And by the way, we knew that SARS was going on in Korea, but we also knew that there were geographic barriers, there were political constraints, and I mean political not in the sense of the, the weirdness that we see among individuals in Washington or at the state governments or local governments. I'm talking about political in the sense of how you run governments and, and prioritize decision-making. There were, there were political concerns in this country based upon the likelihood of SARS becoming an issue in the United States, travel, etc., that did not make us posture the way the South Koreans did who had active SARS cases that they were treating. One of the steps that they went to, and I'm going to link this in the show notes to Dr. Kim Woo-Ju. He does a subtitled interview um, with an Asian uh, uh, journalistic website. I think that's what we could correctly call them, which is actually beautifully informative. It's about 30 minutes long. If you want to know everything you want to know about Koreans and their masks... Go to minute 15 and scrub through it. Uh, you'll learn an awful lot about things that are really important. But Dr. Kim Wooju does a wonderful job explaining why the Koreans did what they did. 
they were uh, they were 18 years ahead of us in terms of anticipating this. This is why they had reagents uh, that were prepared to go. They had, of course, masking of society and what I would call a REM, a reverse isolation mask. And I, I want that term clearly understood, a reverse isolation mask. Um, I'll get into some wonkish nug work details of that in a minute. But they were very sensitive to that. And the Korean population, because they live under, much like the people of Israel, live under a relatively constant state of alert because of uh, uh, potential for North Korean aggression. They're a country, not only because of size, because of concentration of people, because of understanding that when the government says there's a problem, we better immediately comply because that problem might be an invasion by North Korea. We better comply for survival. They're... Uh, response is probably trustworthy. They're an open Westernized society that will give us data. We can believe their numbers. And uh, based upon their size, China doesn't look anything like that. And there's a problem with that. Understand geopolitically, China has a huge problem. I've talked about that before, and I think it's really important you keep it in mind. Because if the Chinese government uh, doesn't I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to repair their optics problem right now. We know that the Chinese test kits that have been shipped out to Italy and other countries are flawed. We know that they don't work right, which means that the Chinese may have been, even with using them domestically, may have been getting false data in terms of who was and who was not infected. That's why, as of today, there appears to be a reemergence of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections, otherwise known as um, COVID-19, that disease spectrum. And that's a really big problem, okay? Okay. Let's also talk about the politics of Mexico. A couple of days ago, it was announced that the Mexican government basically said, go about your business. Don't worry about containment. Um, the problem with that is, is that we share a border with Mexico, and about a million people every day cross that border or have to do work. We have lots of Mexicans that come in the United States, and likewise, lots of Americans that go into Mexico to do business, to do trade. They are a trading partner of ours. Um, when you hear talk about walls and barriers, they are never... For anybody that knows this topic, they're never in the context of let's completely shut off people traveling to and from Mexico. That's just a, that's just a canard that should be dispensed with because everybody knows that we have trade, but we have movement because uh, we need it. We're, we're dependent upon each other in that sense, especially in the agricultural world. A lot of skilled laborers living in Mexico, a lot of car manufacturing stuff goes on there. When we talk about barriers between countries, those barriers are there to prevent spread of things like disease, terrorism, things like that. People who don't follow the rules, that don't get documentation status, say for um, uh, guest worker visa or permanent resident visas or, or those kind of things. Plenty of people do that from Mexico and they are, they are wonderful. And we want them. But what we're really concerned about is not knowing who's coming in the country. And so when you talk about barriers, those barriers, any military person knows, channel people to ports of entry where they are then forced to undergo scrutiny. We can't stop everyone, but we can certainly get the bulk of them. And as you can see with the emergence of a pandemic disease, that's another reason why we need to know who's coming in the country and what conditions are coming into it under. Um, again, people will be triggered by that politically. I'm speaking purely as a military person in national security. And that is another debate that will come on for some time. And if it isn't the case that the Mexican government continues to encourage its people not to worry about being treated or testing and just go about life as normal, then that's a big problem. And uh, that needs to be dealt with as well. I want to talk about... Um, you know, when we look at these masks and PPE, we see every day desperation on the part of uh, ICU nurses, technicians, doctors, people who are working in emergency rooms, respiratory therapists that are pleading for PPE. 
They desperately want PPE, and they are really wanting it. And I'm telling you right now, we are moving mountains for PPE. Thousands and thousands of pieces of PPE are being moved. Uh, I can tell you as of a couple of days ago, uh, just one briefing, right? And I think and I lost track because I've recorded this episode so many times. It will get uh, produced this evening, and it will get posted. Uh, the quote was 30,000 N95 masks, 1,500 Tyvek suits being loaded on trucks. Where? In China. Okay? That's just the reality of, of how the supply chain developed over the last 30 years. And make no mistake, this is not a problem in the last three years. It's not a problem in the last two months. It's not even a problem in the last 12 years. It's a problem in the last 30 years. All of us who came through medical school uh, 30 years ago, we remember when you never really heard of shortages, right? Because U.S. domestic manufacturing of pharmaceuticals and the packaging for those pharmaceuticals meant that we were building this stuff here. So I, I used the quote, um, I used the reference of diphenhydramine. I never, ever heard of a diphenhydramine, otherwise known as Benadryl by trade name, one of the trade names. I never heard of a Benadryl shortage as a medical student or, or a resident but I've heard of Benadryl shortages several times, actually, as a practicing physician, and propofol, and all sorts of other drugs that are critical for day-to-day operations in the United States, but were outsourced to foreign producers. Either we produced the base pharmaceutical and shipped it overseas to have it packaged, or it was produced entirely overseas, and now because of variability in supply chains, the plant goes down, whatever... We now see shortages of medications. The problem is, is that the medication shortage inconvenienced medical professionals for 30 years. It didn't directly threaten them. PPE, lack of availability, directly threatens medical providers. And that's why we're in a real pickle right now. But what is the silver lining? Okay, the silver lining is, and I can speak to this with authority because I'm directly involved in this, is that domestic production of PPE is not only ramping up and getting products moved out, but it is growing okay there are projects right now that when they fully emerge people are going to be gobsmacked by what has happened in terms of the engineering design of durable ppe that is meant to be re-sterilized or sterilized and reused of um of the of the rim the reverse isolation mass that you've seen um, I just sent uh, guidance up to some folks that are in, involved in this project that the, the homegrown masks that we've had, which are so t- are wonderfully awesome, that the American people stepped up and started sewing these things. Specific design modifications, specific requests for improvement in process, manufacturing, and uh, materials. Um, I'll also post a note that I got from a publication that was submitted to JAMA about uh, the, the nature of aerosolization of respiratory droplets. It's, it's again, wonkish, but what you see in there is um, a droplet, a, a rim, a reverse isolation mask is really useful. In fact, they should be used at all facilities that have uh, r- relatively stable or, or confined populations. Let me give you an example of that. Jails, prisons, nursing homes, psychiatric facilities, dialysis units, chemotherapy centers where people have to stay in the same room for hours on end and practitioners are working with them. Every one of those facilities should have their personnel in some kind of reverse isolation mask for droplet containment. It will ease the burden of surface decontamination and cleaning. It will also greatly reduce the risk of a patient acquiring something. And the pa- 
patients need to be reverse isolated if they're a transient patient population moving in and out of normal civilized life. So let's take the dialysis center, the chemotherapy center. Those patients should be in reverse isolation masks when they come in, and the practitioners that are taking care of them should also be in reverse isolation. That is just common sense. Dr. Kim Wuju does a great um, job discussing that. And when you look at the show notes and look at the paper that uh, JAMA has submitted or was submitted to JAMA, you will see the nature of a droplet um, is it gets caught. But if the material that it's, that it's hitting is porous enough, those droplets can leave the material, uh, desiccate in the air, and then they become particles that can be suspended in aerosols. And without adequate ventilation and rapid air turnover in these facilities, those particles, especially if the load is increased because of numerous patients who are shedding virus or ill, they will saturate the air and you will now have a, a great potential to inhale enough viral particles without good protection that you could become inoculated and end up having COVID-19, the spectrum of disease process that that entails. Understand that a reverse isolation mask does confer some protection uh, for receiving those particles. It's very small, though, because the particle size is so small and the pores in the material are so big that it's easy for them to transit. One thing one of the respiratory engineers at NIOSH told me uh, not too long ago was that the nice thing is, is that the normal respiratory mechanics of breathing, you don't generate enough vacuum in a pot in a normal situation to just randomly, say, inhale viral particles in transient um, asymptomatic situations. So let's say you go out to the grocery store and someone passes you. You're very unlikely to inhale anything they exhaled. If they're not actively coughing, sneezing, putting out large droplets, you don't touch anything. Certainly in a hospital, in an emergency room, in an ICU, you need to have N95 to PAPR protection because there's just so much of this stuff floating around the air, both uh, that's aerosolized and droplets that can be shot out and on surfaces. It really is a very, very bad place to be unprotected. And that's understood. Um, I like to give you further numbers in terms of the number of pappers that have been pushed out just in one supply node from the military out to civilian assistance. The number of N95s from one supply node in the military, uh, the reserve military components to assistance to other facilities in the civilian, um, in the civilian sphere. It is being done. It's being done clearly. But the demand is so high. One quote we were given, there's a hospital in New York that normally runs through about ten to 20,000 uh, masks a week. Their utilization has increased tenfold. They're now using two hundred to 300,000 masks a week. These are N95s and surgical masks. The burn rate is incredible. And so understand that the first community-transmitted case of COVID-19 in Los Angeles on the 26th of February, and I'm recording this on the 30th of March. So you are looking at 33 days since this first started moving around in society in community transmission. I will tell you flat out, it is unbelievable to me how fast we've mobilized. Let me talk to you uh, in vague terms about N95 project that I've been tangentially involved with. Um, I'm working with engineers and ergonomics in terms of human factors, wearability, that kind of thing. They have rapidly developed a sterilizable N95 mask with filter materials, re replaceable filters. This whole discussion of Battelle coming up with a novel way of, of sterilizing for reuse N95s at a, at a 
factor of 160,000 masks at a time. There's a little bit of a kerfluffle there with the FDA, and then Governor DeWine got involved. They went from, we're going to approve 10,000 a day to 160,000 a day, and that's been settled. So Battelle is going to start reverse start sterilizing and for reuse N95s that were never meant for reuse. We're talking about a mask that can be sterilized repeatedly, is meant for sterilization and reuse, Okay. The designs are there. The prototypes have been built. As far as I know, the, the initial low-rate production is 800 to 1,000 a day using 3D print technology on a socially networked print farm, okay? Once advanced manufacturing stands up, that will increase by, I, I can't give you a factor, but an order of magnitude probably in terms of production. 3D printing is very useful for rapid prototyping or one or two off-type designs. It's being used in ways it has never was never intended for uh, to 3D print on mass like we're doing is really a pretty interesting thing and it should it's going to be written up i'm sure in papers uh, the other thing is 3d printing parts identifying what types of parts that respiratory therapists need ventilatory uh, patients in icus that are on ventilators or bipap machines that there's an active effort to identify those parts that can be 3d printed and rapidly turned around for replacements uh, when the supply chain can't manage that and then we go into the whole face mask uh thing that um you know, face shields, when you're talking about creating those. Uh, the engineers at WVU posted on YouTube how to make a face shield out of commonly available vinyl or acetate uh, f- uh, films, like you use in overhead projectors, and use it and make them very quickly uh, so that they can be used as adequate uh, face and eye shield, uh, face and eye protection while the domestic production of these things is, is ramping up. It's, uh, it's, it's a really amazing thing to watch. Um, I went to, back to diverge just briefly on the Prime Minister of England, and uh, apparently he is COVID positive, or uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive, yes, COVID-19, uh, and um, we wish him the best. I know he's trying very hard in his own country. And when we talk about this, uh, we would, of course, be talking about Dr. Ming Lin, who was working as an emergency room doctor um, at uh, Peace Health St. Joseph Medical Center in Bellingham, Washington. He uh, was fired because he got on social media pleading uh, for uh, additional PPE and, and asking for help for his, for his folks. The administration thought that the, uh, this just boggles my mind. It really boggles my mind. The administration thought that the greatest idea would be to fire him. Okay, He's got experience working uh, at a trauma center during 9-11 in New York City, uh, and he was told by his employer, Team Health, that he was not to, to show up for work, that, um, you know, that it's okay, they don't want you back. I am, it blows my mind how, how administration, because they're so dialed in on their marketing, okay, and their, their image is so naive and so fundamentally... Um, short-sighted as to think that this will not be a tremendous problem for them. Firing an ER doctor in Washington state for speaking out and wanting additional uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, and then, the, you know, it, it, I mean, just on the surface, right, given what you know about COVID-19 and the response so far and, and what is going on with it, it, it just boggles your mind, doesn't it? It just boggles your mind. Who in there, who would think, who would think that that was a good idea? Well, I think it's a reflection on the state of healthcare and people need to be aware of that. 
you know, everybody wants the solution to immediately go to socialized medicine. They, 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 that's always the default. If anything goes wrong, let's go to socialized medicine. They never really consider the fact that, um, you know, to get that, you got what you have in the NHS today, which confirmed that it's making now triage decisions on viability for the ICU. They, they're having to ration care. You are going to be tossed off. We may face that too. I'm not saying that we're immune to it, even in our own system. But the NHS has in England has not had a, a lack of these sort of controversial or controversial, controversial, how the Brits say it, controversial situations where they decide we're just not going to let people, we're just not going to do dramatic measures for this class of people. Okay, that doesn't happen in the United States of America. You know, if you're a dialysis patient at the age of 65 and you need to go in an ICU, you're probably going to get one, a a bed, right? There's no NHS saying you can't be cared for. Now, we do have some issues about scale. I've talked about that on rotations before. We have an issue of really identifying where costs are because there is no cost transparency because these corporations do not tell people what what things cost. They will not engage in proper market competition to drive costs down and let people be aware of what things cost so they can make informed decisions. The fact of the matter is, though, is that any hospital today I mean, I've already said that. The, the, the think, right? You wonder why people would fire an ER doctor, right? If the hospital is run by a practicing physician who is the CEO, right? And maybe this did happen. I don't know. Maybe they pulled him aside and said, dude, we are working night and day to get you your PPE. We know about it. Here, here's the bills of lading. Here's the orders. Here's everything that's going on right now that we're trying to get that resource in. You could, you're free to say whatever you want. And it's a crisis. We understand it's terribly stressful. But if you could just find it in your heart to just understand this is being done, know it's on its way. And I'm sorry I can't make it magically appear, but but I'm not going to fire you. I definitely am not going to fire you. I'm not going to increase the workload on my remaining physicians, kowtow them, and intimidate them because they want to express themselves. The optics on that, you don't win on that anyway. And when this is done, I'm going to tell you the blowback on on uh, peace health and team health are going to be significant. If it was me, if you if anybody was listening and they want to take a little piece of advice, team health, you better cover his shift shift salary. Okay, you better pay him a check for not being at work. Find him another facility immediately to take the load off because this guy, you know, you don't need to lose ER doctors right now. You could well lose them going forward in the next several weeks, and you're going to need backup on this thing. You're going to need people that can help you. Quit killing your ER doctors for simply being human. Really, really bad. Ah, blows my mind. Um, I'm I'm pleased to say that I got uh, good pictures of uh, reverse isolation masks, rims. I keep using the term. I I coined it. If it ever comes into commonplace, I'm the guy that that termed rim, reverse isolation masks. Um, being used by our own hospital, what I'm really working towards is developing a better rim. Korea has a thing called the KF94 standard, which basically is like an N95, but for civilian use, it's not a sealed mask like an N95. But what we want to get is we want to get a reverse isolation mask that does not allow, it allows negligible to no desiccation of those droplets inside the mask that you might shed and then aerosolization. We don't, we want that. So, Getting everybody into reverse isolation masks um, is a really good idea. Uh, we're going to get used to it. We're all going to have our own. I hope that people start making them in fun colors. Like I say, I'd love to have one with an Ohio pennant on it. You know, I, I won't I won't do an American flag because I, I won't wear the American flag. I'm an Army officer. I just won't wear the American flag, period, uh, in, in, a, in a piece of clothing or, or garment. But if you make an Ohio pennant or if you make a WV with a, with a gold, with a blue and gold, or you make an OU with a, with a, a green and white, I'll put that on. What I want to do is get to the engineering step where we have 
the KF94 protections with the design features we need, which are non-elastic straps for extended wear, uh, moldability over the nose, um, and launderable by personnel. So when I have my I, every shift, I take in my three or four uh, KF94 or WV94, whatever we come up with, standard masks. As one gets damp, if I'm extended operations, I can change it. So the wetness, which I've talked about before, that's a factor with um, contamination. If the mask gets wet from respirations, uh, it's possible that contamination can get into the mask or can can migrate and get on your face. You don't want that. I'm really excited about that. Uh, and I'm being careful and I'm being fast about this particular rotation is I'm trying to get us down to some reasonable thing, right, in terms of, um, in terms of the... Uh, uh, duration of each of these episodes. I just want to bring you up to date. I want to talk a little bit about um, about uh, bandwidth and about teaching. Okay, I had a wonderful talk with uh, the dean of our Dublin campus at OU, uh, Dean uh, Bill Burke. We talked about public health response, how to support epidemiological efforts, what can students do to be part of that, and it's his position to and and Dr. Johnson's to to develop that policy. I'm just the I'm just the good idea fairy. I'm just the guy that says this is what I'm thinking. Right, and we'll see where it goes. And these are all very thoughtful people who have great ideas and have, know their own constraints and limitations. So I won't be um, I won't be the one that tells them what to do. They're they're in leadership for a reason, and they can do their own thing. However, um, I think it's important that we talk about OU's curriculum. I had my first experience with my students uh, doing simulation interprofessional experience. Uh, I want to thank the support staff that put that together on the fly with a little bit of input from us as clinicians. Uh, certainly the, the second years benefited uh, more from that because the Cleveland Sim-IPE section of the, the academics really gave a pretty in-depth um, scenario for that, and they did a commendable job. And, uh, and but, but here's the thing. I'm going to segue, as you know I'm want to do. Yesterday I was interviewed by NPR uh, about masks. Um, I do, in my military role, healthcare. My colleague Kermit Hubner, MD, MPH, a Dayton ER physician and reservist colonel in the West Virginia Army National Guard. Um, he does sick care. He is intimately involved with what do we do when people are critically ill in hospitals? How does the state respond to that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we overlap a little bit, but we generally stay out of each other's lanes on that. We communicate all the time. We're in constant communication. Um, NPR wanted to talk to me about masks, and I've become... I would say much more expert at this because I keep getting papers that have looked at these simple masks over the years and how to build them better. And so, you know, I was looking at that and um, talking about health care and sick care. And I got interviewed by NPR about this, which is great. But in order to do this, so the NPR is production, going over the phone with the connections I have because I have horrible bandwidth out here in Amesville, Ohio, Frontier, please lay fiber. Um... I actually recorded on my own recording gear. I sent the file to the NPR reporter. And through the magic of NPR production, they will collate those two, her side and my side. So hopefully, it'll seem like a relatively seamless conversation that was had in the same room, even though she was interviewing me from Washington. Long story short, I tried to upload that file from my home. It said 30 hours. That's how horrible our bandwidth is in Amesville, Ohio. I took it into the Walmart parking lot today with my computer and used my phone as a Wi-Fi hotspot, it was loaded in seven minutes, the audio file. It's just ridiculous. But, but what that tells me is whenever the people that take our internet payments every month and give us crap service, whenever they get with their act together and actually give us high-speed broadband, the, the, 
the ability to teach is going to be off the charts. I did Sim IPE with my little cohort of three or four students. Uh, we did it with Microsoft Teams. It's a brand. It's a product. There's other, there's other similar products, but Microsoft Teams is what we have. And it was a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed interacting with my students. They asked really good questions. Sometimes we're in a room with with uh, eight or 16 students and no one really wants to hold pick up their hand. And this was an academically intimate setting where they could ask questions and I could teach them. And I know teaching is a bad term in a flipped classroom, but it's what doctors do. And they were happy. They did their scenario. They did it well. They reasoned through it. And then we debriefed and talked about clinical practice and, and ejection fractions and optimal CPR and hands-on time and why you got to do things a certain way and how we make those determinations. And so I'm excited to see what medical education evolves into. And I don't think Dr. Burke would be upset about me talking about this, but one thing that's interesting about our, about our curriculum, because we have regional campuses, we are not inexperienced with broadcasting educational content, which means that the thinking of all the costs of medical school, all the physical plans of medical school, what we really have the brick and mortar structure for, why does it exist? We may be rethinking, and I'm not making policy again, I'm just saying as a good idea guy, how do we use that space? Maybe the old models don't really need to be there. Maybe we do the bulk of our content in those sort of intimate, small group, flipped learning, augmented systems where we have a good discussion after a simulated activity. And it could be in the reels that they could go into the simulation center and they could have cases they have to work through and then we debrief. But we have to come up with something because if we have a reemergence of SARS-CoV-2 and uh, the, it going through society in next October and November, we're going to have to disperse, disperse the population again. You will not be able to teach in the same manner that we do now. We're going to have to get really good at this, and we're going to have to figure out how do we sequence timing around disease emergence and prevalence in a way that continues to facilitate great education while leveraging the technology that we have. It's really an exciting time for me. And I think that I want to end on that note. I think I want to end on that note because here's the deal. I've said it all along. In another month, you'll be able to get tested whenever you want. There's PCR testing every day. More labs, hospital-based systems stand up that can do testing. Um, remember, if you send it off to Quest or LabCorp, it's a seven-day turnaround because lots and lots of people are using that. But if it's your local facility that does it, their own lab will be able to eventually, if you don't have it already, will be able to eventually run those tests. The turnaround time can be a couple hours. I mean, uh, one of my friends who thankfully tested negative because we are in close association working on the military, he also works in an emergency room and uh, he was exposed to a COVID-19 positive patient. So he had to self-quarantine for a couple of days, but he had his COVID-19 test results back within 24 hours to make sure that he had not acquired it. And that's a great thing. Now, there's always this sort of specificity, sensitivity thing going on there. But I, you know, in the absence of symptoms, I feel pretty confident um, it had been four or five days since he was exposed. He got the test. It was back in a day or so. So we're probably okay, right? He's probably cool about that. So we'll just wait with caution, but that's coming. It's about three or four weeks away because it's got to be, you You know, you got to have it everywhere. You got to stand at the labs and the protocols and reagents and the swabs and all that stuff. It's coming. It is. Check is not just in the mail. It's being delivered actually. Lots of places are getting massive amounts of PPE. Uh, they are. Other places, and this is a big challenge for us, cross-leveling resources, making sure we don't create a, 
a glut in one place and a dearth in the other. Is it a dearth or a glut? I always forget. An overabundance or an underabundance, okay? And that's a big, big challenge. And we're going to get there. We are. Again, South Korea has done 300,000 tests. We've done 900,000 in the United States. Well, but we're a much bigger country, Dr. Fredericks. Yes, we are. But keep in mind, South Korea had 18 years on us to prepare for this. I talked to one of the skilled subject matter experts today. And I say, I think we're about, um, today, we're about 12 years behind South Korea. In a month, we'll be about two years behind South Korea. And in six months, we'll be uh, on parity with South Korea in terms of our ability to respond to this. It's a very, very exciting time. And I, I say that as an upbeat note, uh, not to diminish um, the fact that people are dying from this disease. It's sad. It's tragic. We knew it was coming, but it hurts for the individuals. And I, my sympathies and condolences go out to any family that's wrestled with this, that has um, endured the loss of someone that's dear to them because of this, or is currently watching someone in an ICU or at home that's really fighting this infection. I really, I, I extend my sympathies for you because it is, it is terrible. But it is also true that we are, especially in this part of the country, and especially in the state of West Virginia, uh, we are pulling the stops out to make sure that we don't see spikes, that we are completely prepared when the impact hits us of a large cohort at one time being infected. I see positive movement in Ohio. I'm proud of our governor and our leadership of doing reverse isolation ahead of the standard, ahead of recommending, ahead of universal, um, uh, universal push for that. Um, that we are looking at our institutions that have fixed populations or, or sustained populations like the dialysis units that must be there for several hours or chemotherapy. I assume that these precautions and protocols are in place. So with that, I'm going to end this episode of Rotations, uh, Rotations 5 plus plus. This is the third attempt at this. I'm going to put it into uh, GarageBand. My new MacBook Pro is coming with Final Cut. I like editing better than Final Cut. I'll try to pick some appropriately good music for you so that you can enjoy that, and then I'm going to uh, then I'm going to get it published. And with I, as with always, um, I'll just do the I'll just do the disclaimer. Now I'll do the disclaimer separately. You guys want to hear that anyway, okay? With that, I bid you adieu, and please listen to the disclaimers. Send me comments. I'm at Tr Fredericks on Facebook. I'll be your friend. I really will. I want to know what you have to say, and I want you to forward this information because I'm telling you right now, it's good. I'm giving you what's good. I promise you. I promise you. Um, I'm a narrative medicine guy. Uh, I love the media of uh, visual and audio communications to get information out to teach. And um, I want your comments. I want you to be my friend on Facebook. That's what I'm saying. Be my friend on Facebook. Peace out. Rotations is the uh, podcast of all things medicine, science, and art. And it is a product of mediaandmedicine.com and is supported by Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, the Scripps College of Communications, and Ohio University. The opinions expressed on rotations are that of the producers, hosts, and guests alone, and they do not reflect the official or unofficial uh, positions of Ohio University, Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, the Scripps School of Communications, the West Virginia Army National Guard, the Department of Defense, or any other agency that is mentioned on here. These opinions are ours and ours alone. 
We try to bring you the truth and we try to bring it to you well and we try to give you what we know when we know it so that we can have an open dialogue. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so we can let them have their say. We try to have a lot of fun with this. We try to make it enjoyable and something you can listen to. At times it might get a little serious, but at the end of the day, we're here for knowledge and education. We invite uh, comments, and you can certainly get a hold of uh, those of us uh, involved with this. Uh, my Twitter handle is at uh, Medical Cinema on Twitter. Brian Plows is at Prof Plow on Twitter. I am TR Fredericks on Facebook. I ask that you leave constructive comments, good or bad, but no hating. Hmm? And uh, you're welcome to send us uh, send us that at any time. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks, edited uh, by Todd Fredericks, hosted by Todd Fredericks, and basically just had Todd Fredericks. Uh, Our other producer is Brian Plow, professor uh, at uh, the Scripps College of Communications uh, in uh, Media Arts and Studies. And we have, of course, our producer at large, Nisarg Bakshi, who will eventually come back on the show. We want you all to have a great day.